Welcome to the Staying Ageless Podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Associate E, also known as Raw Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach. And today on the show, we will be talking about surviving COVID-19 and everything you need to know about vaccines. To get this longevity party started, I'm going to give you guys some insights into my recent experiences helping clients beat COVID-19. And later, we'll be chatting with our expert for today, Joanne Farb, a microbiologist and vaccine expert. I am so grateful to have each and every one of you tuning into the show from all over the world. Shout out to listeners in Uganda, Mozambique, South Africa, the UK, France, Germany, I got something special for y'all today. Canada, Poland, I appreciate you all. And shout out to everyone listening in the United States of America. I really appreciate y'all. If today's show inspires you, I'm inviting you to go ahead and subscribe and please rate the show on Apple Podcasts and write a review. It means the world to me to get feedback. So any reviews are much appreciated. Okay, y'all. So to start off this episode, I want to tell you about some successes I've recently had with treating clients and a family member who had COVID-19 or who contracted COVID-19. Late October, my uncle, who's um, over 70 years old, he's a marathon runner. He's not on any medications. He's actually in really great health. Um, He contracted COVID-19 and everyone was in a big tizzy. So... I luckily I had already done a bunch of research and I, some of which I have already shared on this podcast, um, on the nutrients needed to fortify the immune system and also stop viral replication. And I had already actually created a protocol just in case any of my clients got it. And if you missed it, go back and listen to our past episode, how to boost your immunity and natural antiviral remedies. And so I gave him this protocol and he started taking on day six. Um, and at that point his temperature just kept climbing. He was experiencing a lot of the symptoms. It wasn't going very well. He was having night sweats, all kinds of stuff. He also charted his vitals and his temperature. And amazingly enough, his graph shows that on the day that he began my protocol, his temperature began to go down steadily over the next four days until it completely normalized. He recently called me about a week ago after running 10 miles. It's completely back to his normal routine, no respiratory issues or residue or issues post-virus. This was super exciting and also such a relief. And then right after that experience, I had a friend and a client both contract COVID. I gave them the same protocol and both recovered in a matter of days. I think one person recovered in two days, the other one recovered in three. Now, I'm aware that in these particular cases that none of these people had any major pre-existing conditions, and that was a huge help in allowing for recovery and also ensuring their bodies when given the right support, could fight the virus off. But I also just want to put some positive vibes out there and remind you that if you are taking precautions, if you are following sanitation rules and you are actually following a healthy diet and lifestyle, you put your body in the best position to be able to survive any pandemic. Okay, so today we're going to get a little controversial, child. (laughs) Not really, but sort of. I want to chat about vaccines, and I know it's a touchy topic, but I do think it's really important. I mean, the UK is getting ready to, you know, give the vaccine out. And I think it's really important that whether you're for vaccines or against them, that we need to ask questions. 
And I've been reading in the past couple of days about celebrities who are effectively quote unquote canceled on social media for raising questions. And I find that really dangerous. Why? Asking questions and being provided real scientifically backed answers is even more important now that we're talking about administering vaccines globally that are being rushed and skipping over all the normal checks and balances. So questions are essential, people. So whether you fall on either side, I hope that you at least agree on that because it could affect our future and the future of the next generation. Whatever we choose to do to our bodies today, especially in the case of a vaccine or something injected into our system, can have repercussions for decades afterwards, especially when there's no research to tell us what happens decades after injection. (laughs) And since y'all are presumably like your girl and interested in living a long, healthy life, it's really important that we dig deep so that we can make the determination for ourselves. So that's why I'm really excited about today's guest. But in the spirit of asking questions, before we get to that, in case you missed this bit of news, Dr. Reiner Fulmick, who has been a consumer protection trial lawyer in California and Germany for 26 years, he's a founding member of this new committee that was founded called the German Corona Extra Parliamentary Inquiry Committee. This was launched on July 2020. He's one of the four members of this group And he's leading the committee's Corona Crisis Tort Case, which is an international class action lawsuit that will be filed against those responsible for using fraudulent testing to engineer the appearance of a dangerous pandemic in order to implement economically devastating lockdowns around the world. To be clear, their chief complaint is not that somehow the virus is a hoax. Let's not go there today, people. (laughs) All those hoax people, please have a seat. But moreover, his their, their complaint is that the harm that it has caused has been grossly exaggerated and that some of the assertions about how it's spread and testing do not add up. So the World Health Organization has now admitted that there are no asymptomatic transmissions, and this committee has pointed that out. Um, it actually has been on their website for months now, um, but unfortunately, many people may still be under the impression that no symptoms could still mean spread of the virus. Here's what it says actually, on the World Health Organization website. Um, And this was published on June 11th of 2020. Um, They said global research on COVID-19 continues to be conducted, including how it's transmitted. Current evidence suggests that most transmission occurs from symptomatic people through the close contact with others. Uh, Accordingly, they uh, recommend personal protective measures, such as mask and physical distancing, Um, based on controlling transmission from symptomatic patients, including patients with mild symptoms who are not easy to identify early on. And then they say available evidence from contact tracing reported by countries suggests that asymptomatically infected individuals are much, much less likely to transmit the virus than those who develop symptoms. So this is on their website, child. They also say a subset of studies and data shared by countries and contact tracing activities have reported that asymptomatically infected individuals are much less likely to transmit the virus than those who develop symptoms. Uh, There was a report that I read as well that um, came up from Wuhan, China, that basically confirmed what, what was posted on here where they screened more than 10 million residents after COVID was under control and after a lockdown, and they identified 300 asymptomatic cases of COVID, none of which was infectious. 
So those that are filing these suits are also saying that it's clear that COVID is no more infectious than the common flu. And I believe they have some data to back that up as well. I did not look that up in particular. He estimates that more than 50 other countries will be following suit. And I'm going to link an article in a video interview with Dr. Fulmick via um, Dr. Mercola's website in the show notes so that you can watch it yourself and form your own opinions. But this committee that he founded is really interesting in, in answering a bunch of questions, including what actually caused this pandemic, who started it, who needs to be held accountable, and in what ways must they be held accountable. Now, all of that is great and fine and dandy, but the most important of the article for me was that it confirmed my specific suspicions about the PCR testing being used to test for the coronavirus. Because since this pandemic started, I've personally been repeatedly asking doctor colleagues, I've been asking other people, medical professionals, to explain to me how in the world a nose swab is used to test for this specific virus. <laughs> and no one could give me an answer. So here's what I learned. As explained by Fulmic, reverse transcription Polymerase chain reaction tests, that's what the type of test this is, it's a PCR test, have several weaknesses. And these weaknesses appear to be exploited in the case of the coronavirus. So the PCR test is actually not designed to be used as a diagnostic tool because it can't distinguish between inactive viruses and live or reproductive viruses. This is really critical because the difference between inactive and reproductive, that means whether or not I'm going to be infecting somebody, right? So if I have a non-reproductive virus in my body, I'm not going to get sick and I'm not going to spread it to anybody. And secondly, many, if not most of the laboratories, what they do is they take the RNA um, that's collected and they amplify it many, many, many times, which actually results in healthy people testing positive. So here's, here's how it goes. So you get this PCR swab, they collect RNA from your nasal cavity. The RNA is then reverse transcribed into DNA, but it has to be amplified in order for them to tell what it is, right? And each round of amplification is called a cycle. And the number of amplification cycles used is called a cycle threshold. So when you go above 30 cycles, very insignificant sequences of viral DNA can be magnified to the point where a test reads positive, even if your viral load is actually extremely low or that virus that they amplified is not even active and doesn't even pose a threat to you or anyone else. And so here's what uh, Fulmic is arguing. He's saying that anything over 35 cycles is scientifically indefensible, yet all of the tests recommended by the World Health Organization are set to 45 cycles. 45 cycles, child. So when they use these really high cycle thresholds, then what you, happens is you end up with way more people getting positive tests that are false positives. So they can basically say that all these people ha are, you know, considered positive cases or, you know, someone who actually has symptoms of this particular disease. But these false test reports are increasing the appearance of the number of cases. So this is part of their argument here. And I actually think it's a very good argument, honestly. Anywho, so here's the kicker. They've actually taken testimony from over a dozen well-respected immunologists from all over the world who agree that the PCR test is incapable of telling us anything about the transmission of COVID-19. Child what? And this is what we've been using? Okay. 
So right now, in case you were unaware, because this won't be broadcast on your nightly news cycle, uh, class action lawsuits are being prepared in the U.S. and Canada. The lawsuits are also being prepared in Germany. They don't, like, apparently, class action lawsuits are not allowed in Germany, so they're doing the, the process a bit differently there. But I really urge you to do some research on your own on this and stay abreast of how this is progressing, as I will be doing the same. And as for the COVID-19 protocol, we're going to be making the full protocol available on my new site, Staying Ageless University, which will be available on stayingagelessuniversity.com. We'll be doing that in the new year or much sooner if we can for a minimal fee. And a portion of the province, we're going to be sending it to one of our partner organizations to help them with food, female sanitary supplies, and health education in Kenya. Okay, y'all, now that we've gone to the dark side of controversy, <laughs> feel free to message me. You can cancel me if you want. I just want to answer. I want to ask questions, of course, but feel free to message me if you have any comments about this or questions about this episode, because I do think it's important that we encourage healthy dialogue around this issue. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to speak to our amazing guest. Are you interested in living your best, healthiest life? I'm Asosa E, also known as The Raw Girl of therawgirl.com, and I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach who specializes in helping you discover what exercise and diet is best for your body and get to the root cause and rebalance if you have a serious chronic condition. Clients who've worked with me have reversed diabetes, hypertension, balanced hormonally, gotten rid of acne for good, and lost hundreds of pounds. If you are interested in reaching your health goals with some support this year, visit therawgirl.com to sign up for a 20-minute call with yours truly. Until then, stay healthy and happy. I am super excited to announce the launch of the new destination I created for online programs called Staying Ageless University. At Staying Ageless University, we create epic content to teach you about holistic wellness and transformational healing programs to help you achieve extraordinary longevity. We believe that learning is an essential component of healing and creating lasting change, and every one of our programs are created from protocols that I have tried and tested on clients who have achieved optimal wellness by following them. Our signature programs include Staying Ageless 30 Plus, which is designed to help women 30 plus interested in staying fly till you're 99 or close to it, create lasting healthy rituals, and the all-new Raw Girls Hormonal Balancing Academy, for women suffering with fibroids, PCOS, endometriosis, cysts, or menopausal symptoms, if you're ready to use holistic means to take control of your hormones and get your life back. We also have two new programs that are amazing for New Year's clean starts, Detox Your Life, which includes 30-day plant-based detox, either raw or vegan, and Candida and Parasites Be Gone for those who are ready to kick Candida overgrowth or parasites to the curb for good. Enrollment is now open for three of our programs, and we officially launched January 1st, 2021. You can learn more about us and our program offerings at stayingagelessuniversity.com. Hope to see you in class.
Today's guest is Joanne Farb, a scientist, wife, mother, and health advocate whose passion has always been to teach, inspire, and bring life-enhancing information to others as a Montessori teacher, as a naturalist in an award-winning outdoor education program, and in a business she founded called Animals on Wheels that brought hands-on science education to schools in the Midwest. After completing her degree in microbiology, she was hired by a multinational pharmaceutical company as as a biodecontamination specialist in a position that had her consulting with lab animal testing facilities, pharmaceutical manufacturing plants, and industrial animal agricultural operations. This experience profoundly changed the course of her life. When she and her husband embarked upon parenthood, that experience, along with their firsthand knowledge of how these industries were impacting the world, caused them to contemplate the choices they had in terms of rearing their children and led to the publication of her first book, Compassionate Souls, Raising the Next Generation to Change the World. A half a dozen years later, symptoms in one of her children led her to research gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. As a result, her whole family went gluten-free and her second book, Get Off Gluten, was published to fill a need for healthy whole foods and gluten-free vegan recipes. Joanne has spent 25 years researching and musing on the intersection of issues of justice, health, and environmental sustainability. Thank you so much, Joanne. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Well, I'm very excited to be here too. And I hope we like stay in touch after this too. Oh my God, we really have to, seriously, please. (laughs) (laughs) Can you just tell us a little bit about your background? It's super cool. You were a microbiologist. How did you end up doing that? And what were you doing at a pharmaceutical company? So I was actually hired to be a biodecontamination specialist with Merck. Mm -hmm. And in that capacity, I I really had two separate jobs they hired me for. Half of my job was to be just a regular specialty chemical sales rep. And Mm -hmm. I had a four-state territory. And I basically consulted with um, people in that territory and helped them solve their problems of infection control and microbial contamination by using my company's products, specialty chemicals. And then the other half of my job, I was hired to be the technical liaison for the subsidiary I worked for, for their largest customer. And in that capacity, they sent me into um, factory farms, uh, um, poultry facilities and swine facilities, where I had to understand their infection control issues and do some, you know, hand washing trainings with employees and build relationships and and so in, in that part of my job, I actually, uh, my management was on the scientific side, whereas as a rep, my management was on the marketing side. And, you know, these are normally two very segregated parts of the company. And, you know, when I was on, when I was acting as a rep, they were just handing me science and saying, here, we want you to make sure people see this. And I would share it and explain it with all of my customers. And my assumption with all of my peers was this was, you know, science is science. It's unbiased. It's, you know, you can trust it. And I, and I did until I was on the scientific side sitting in meetings where there were discussions about the kinds of science we needed to sell products. The marketing team was telling that to the scientific team. And then they were saying, well, we know somebody that would probably do the study the way we need and we'll give them, you know, some grant money for a new autoclave and they'll probably set it up the way we need it. And, you know, and so then I could, I could see 
that science really isn't as unbiased and neutral as everybody assumes it to be. Wow. That's a major revelation. <laughs> <laughs> that was. I mean, that, and that's not only did that really change the way I looked at things, but as I've watched what's unfolded with COVID now, and I understand how, how powerfully these companies, and I, you know, mine was just one, there are dozens of other large connected companies like Merck in that industry. Yeah. And they all have armies of reps and they all are trying to influence the scientific and medical and government communities to operate under a paradigm that supports their business interests. Hmm. So how do we, I mean, are there any protections for the average everyday person? You know, increasingly, I think you have to be informed. You have to do your own research. Yeah. And and I know, you know, not everybody has a science background that makes that makes that easy. But you've still, you know, that's just, just you've got to educate yourself. I, I mean, I think scientific literacy really does matter now more than it ever did before. Yeah. No, for sure. Because then it's easier to spot holes in things when people are saying things that don't make any sense. <laughs> yes, yes. And and if you don't have the scientific literacy, then you really need to make sure you're listening to people who do from mm. a a wide variety of sources and not just what's, you know, on the on the the big tech and the the big media sites. You've really you're gonna have to dig and find people who will share the science with you that, that those sites are choosing deliberately not to share. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Can we talk about the history of vaccines? I don't actually really know that much about the history of vaccines, but I, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, when did this all start and why? So I'm, you know, I'm not going to get the dates. I don't have the dates committed to memory, but yeah, um, yeah. probably I think somewhere in the 1700s, this is, this is kind of the Genesis story to my whole <laughs> field of study, okay? Um, Edward Jenner was uh, a guy, he may have, I, I don't even, I don't know his whole background, but he discovered, he, he observed first, and the scientific method, you know, always starts with observation. Yeah. And so he observed that milkmaids who had been exposed to cowpox cow and had these pustules on their hands from milking the cows were less likely to get or die from smallpox, which was a very feared disease at that point. And so he, I guess, did this little experiment. And I think there was actually some history that some other people had done this too. I don't think this was just like totally his idea. He had, he'd heard that others had done this too, but he like made us a cut into the skin of people and got that cowpox pus in their cut mm -hmm. to deliberately give them cowpox. And then that appeared to have some protective effect from smallpox, which is a more dangerous disease. Hmm. And so there's actually, you know, it's funny because all the years as a science student, when I was hearing over and over and over about this, I heard one set of facts about this, but I mm -hmm. never, ever heard that there was actually some pushback. That was never discussed in any, it was just like from the get-go, this was a great idea and it was embraced <laughs> and it saved all these lives. It was only many years later when I started doing research that I heard stories that actually there were people who felt they were, had been injured by this process. Right. And, and people who thought their children died from this process. And they were very upset by it. And there was a lot of pressure early on to force people to do this in certain places mm -hmm. and, and people fighting against it. 
And, um, and so that's, you know, and it's interesting, like through all of my education, I never once heard that people are ever injured by vaccines. That wasn't even Hmm. a possibility in my brain. Right. And I really got on this whole path because uh, years later, it was in fact, after I left Merck and I had been one of the biggest vaccine advocates ever. Um, one of my friends was having a baby and she had said to me that she wasn't sure she was going to vaccinate her child. And Mm -hmm. I went into a panic and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, this friend, she didn't have the science education I had. And she told me some things that concerned her. And I thought, this is a perfect example of the scientific illiteracy that I had been warned about in my education. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know she's going to put her baby at risk. You know, it's my job as her friend to show her where she's misinformed. And so I asked her for the information that she had that was making her think this. And it was at that time, a publication from a health food store, um, their magazine. And she, and it expressed some concerns about vaccines and it was referenced to the peer reviewed literature. And I looked and I said, Oh, this is going to be so easy. I'm just going to get the articles they reference and show her how they're lying and misrepresenting the actual science. Right. Yeah. This was before internet. So that meant I had to go to the medical library to get the papers. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I, I get the papers and I read them and it's the first time I've ever seen this information. Wow. And I'm shocked by what I see. And it basically not only confirmed what was in the article, but it, it, it opened my eyes. And, and, and at first I was still like, okay, this is like maybe, you know, one tiny example. I'm sure this is a huge exception. Um, but I started digging more and more, and it, it, it's it's been a many many years of research and collecting studies. And I actually had the good fortune to be in Australia at one point, hmm. and um, and I one of the studies I had come upon was actually uh, it was again it was in a not in a peer reviewed literature it was in a popular you know press thing, mm-hmm. but it was a woman who had created an infant breathing monitor. Um, in Australia, her husband had, and when they were collecting data on it, they noticed that babies, this is to prevent crib death, they noticed that some babies were stopping breathing in right after getting vaccines. Oh my goodness. And because she had the parents, you know, keeping logs, what had happened that day, you know, when they, so that she could know if they ever had stopped breathing, try to tie it in with what was going on in their life. She never dreamed vaccines would pop up, but that's what kept popping up in all these things. It was right after a vaccine and or certain wow. periodic intervals after. And that started her researching vaccines. And, um, and so I had her name and I was spending some time in Australia and I looked her up and I was fortunate enough to get an invitation to her home and office. Mm-hmm. And she had collected every English language scientific study ever published on vaccines going back a hundred years. Wow. She not only had every single one of those studies, she remembered every single one of those. And I could sit down with her and ask her a question like, well, I heard about this study that showed the Hib vaccine, you know, prevented death in children. And she could go right to it and pull a study up and show me how they had deliberately excluded data from their final analysis for frivolous reasons that when you put that data back in, it totally changed the conclusions. Oh my goodness. Wow. And so that, yeah. So that's kind of how I got where I am right now. Okay. And so how in theory are vaccines supposed to work? We're supposed to build up antibodies and then that's what's supposed to save us? Yes. So, you know, our immune system is really a lot more than antibodies. 
There's the mucous membranes, the lymphatic system, there's T cells and B cells and antibodies. But vaccines focus exclusively on measuring antibody titers. So antibodies are these little things, you could think of them like the letter Y floating through your bloodstream. And they, so one end of the Y, the, the, the end where you've just got one thing sticking out the bottom of the Y, mm-hmm. that part attaches to, that, uh, that part kind of sticks out from your cells when it, well, let me start, it, or start with the top end of the Y. The top end of the Y, those two pieces, mm-hmm. they actually have binding sites on them that are very specific for viruses or bacteria, mm. for very specific ones. And so, The idea is once you've had some new virus or bacteria in your system, your body, there's kind of a lag period while your body's getting acquainted with it. But what it tries to do is to to create antibodies specific to that virus. And so there's, when it figures out what that antibody needs to look like, the ends of it actually bind to the virus. Hmm. And then they, 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 several of them may bind to the virus, and then it becomes more visible by certain white blood cells that can kind of engulf the whole thing okay, and and get it out of your system. So the idea of antibodies is that, and it's kind of, there's kind of a one-to-one or two-to-one or what a, a finite ratio. It takes a certain number of antibodies per virus particle. So if you have too many virus particles relative to how many antibodies you have, the virus overwhelms them and you get sick. Right. If you have enough antibodies present, they overwhelm the virus and then you don't get sick. So the immunologists have kind of gotten in this this way of looking at things where they're measuring how many antibodies do you have and they have sort of calculated what they believe are the amounts you need to protect you from most encounters of of that organism. But wouldn't that be different for every person or not really? You know, I think that's a good point. That's not something I was ever educated on. So I, and I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there's many, many factors that go into this. Yeah. I say that just because I've, you know how some people, some people seem to get sick from vaccines and some people are like, yeah, it was fine. You know? <laughs> right. Well, I don't know that that's so much about the antibodies as it, there's, there's lots of other factors that I think could figure into that. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So. Now that they're talking about this COVID-19 vaccine, they're saying it's an mRNA vaccine. How then does that differ from the traditional vaccine? So traditional vaccines, initially vaccines gave you uh, either the the killed virus or the killed bacteria Mm -hmm. so that it couldn't reproduce in your body, but it, it gave your body a chance to recognize it and build antibodies to it. So mm-hmm. that that was how, and then we've also taken, we can do that with, they can do live viruses or vaccines that have just, or, or bacteria that have been attenuated, they call it. That means they've grown it under conditions that change its ability to make you sick, but it can still multiply. And so they can put those in your body too. So there's killed and there's live virus vaccines. Mm-hmm. And that's how it's always been until recently. More recently, they figured out that they could reduce that exposure by just taking a piece of protein from the surface of the virus or the bacteria and injecting Mm. that and your body would make antibodies to the protein that would prime it to deal with the disease later. So, but that's, that's all, those are all still traditional ideas about how vaccines are made. When COVID hit, they decided to take a new approach in part because they wanted something 
that they could scale up and produce massively and much more quickly. And the old ways of doing vaccines, that would not be the case. It would be a, a bigger process. Mm-hmm. So that's when they came up with these mRNA vaccines. And the idea here, so messenger RNA is a piece of, of it's a, like a copy of the genetic material mm-hmm. that goes into the cell and it's like the blueprint for assembling a protein. And in this case, they've taken a piece of messenger RNA that codes for the spike protein, which everybody's been talking about on the surface of the COVID virus. Okay. Or the coronavirus, I should say. And the idea being that you train the body to make antibodies to that spike protein. So when it really encounters the real disease, it's primed and it can whip out those antibodies and you win the battle against the virus before it can make you sick. Mm. So what they've done now is they've taken this RNA, this messenger RNA, and then they it, it gets injected into a person under their skin, and it's even a new kind of injection they're doing now. It's not what you're used to. It has to have a special needle. It can deliver a little bit of an electrical current with it, oh my so goodness. so that it gets the cells to actually take up that piece of messenger RNA because it normally won't penetrate a cell inside of it. Once it takes up that messenger RNA, then that messenger RNA directs the cell's organelles to start producing these spike proteins, which hopefully then are made in an amount that gets out into the bloodstream, and then you start um, making antibodies to it. So that's how it's supposed to work. But we've never before injected messenger RNA into human bodies. Right. And we have no idea what sorts of long-term consequences there could be from this. And the the most obvious concern that pops up for me as I think about this, so if you are teaching your human cells to start making a protein that is not a human protein and has never been a human protein, Mm -hmm. what's to prevent your body from not sort of getting triggered into some kind of autoimmune reaction against your cells that are now making this protein that's totally foreign? Exactly. And, you know, to to answer that question would actually take some long-term research and observing people for several years to see what happens after they get these vaccines. And of course, that there won't be time to do that before these are massively injected into people. Oh, my goodness. Do you know how long these current studies are, are going to be running? I have, I have no idea. I don't, but I... You know, my so what what I have seen happen in the past, and I'm going to assume this is likely to happen again, Mm -hmm. is that once they get some data that they think is good enough, Mm -hmm. they will they will tell the public that it's now that they know the vaccine works, it's unethical in light of the epidemic we're facing to deprive the people in the placebo group from having the benefit of this vaccine, right. And they will then in, they will then offer it to everybody in the placebo group, and I'm sure most of them, if they were willing to be in a study, they're going to want the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So they will get the vaccine, and what that will immediately do is prevent us from having a comparison group to know that whatever happens to the people who've been va- who've been vaccinated uh. that that didn't happen to the people who didn't get the vaccine. It will muddy that up, so we will not know. Oh goodness. So when they say things like it has a 90% effective rate, like what does that really mean? I don't even know what that means. So in this case, they, so each of there's, there's been, you know, AstraZeneca, not AstraZeneca, um, Pfizer 
mm-hmm. is one of the ones that I think they said theirs was nine, 90% effective and Moderna said theirs yeah. was 95%. Yeah. Both. Okay. So both of these trials had about 30 to 40,000 people in them. Okay. S- split between. So, and each one of those, then about half those people got the vaccine and about half got the placebo. And then they started fall. They had to get two shots, and and after about within about two weeks after they got their second dose, they started recording cases or noticing cases of people who had come down with COVID, just you know, in their normal everyday life. Mm-hmm. And when they and so they had under a hundred cases so far. So the, remember, there's we got thirty to forty thousand people. We're just two weeks in. And now we've got a few cases of COVID starting to appear in this population. Mm. At that point, they looked to see, well, how many of these people that now have COVID were in the vaccine group and how many were in the placebo group. And that was when they discovered that the vast majority of the people, two weeks after getting the shot, the people that had COVID now were people who had gotten the placebo and then so when they calculated those numbers, mm. they said it was 90% effective in preventing that. So they said that the people who got the vaccine, you know, were protected compared to the people who got the placebo. Gotcha. Okay. But keep in mind, they've only run the study long enough to have 100 cases out of mm. thirty to 40,000 people. Wow. That would be like predicting the outcome of an election for a president with less than Point one percent of precincts reporting. Right, right, right. Wow, so interesting. And and how important? What do we need to know about the actual companies that are producing these vaccines? So that's a really good question to ask. So Moderna, which is uh, has obviously been uh, Fauci's preferred company and they've been there there there's some kind of connection between Moderna and the NAIAD that Fauci's part of but they are actually a, a a newer company and they have not ever brought a product to market before never wow so we don't even really have any evidence how ethical are they how competent are they we don't have any of that on them they've just they've never done it before this is their first time the the other company, Pfizer, we actually have a really long history on. This is a company that has been caught in so many different kinds of fraud, conflicts of interest, intentionally hiding data that would inform people of the risks and benefits of their products. They have paid out over a, multiple billions of dollars in fines and settlements for these things. And mind you, they're a company, they're, they don't just do vaccines, they do lots of things. Yeah. But what people need to be aware of is that while we know all, the, we know all these other things about Pfizer, because most parts of their business, you can still sue them for in a court of law if you think you've been injured by their product or that they hid information. Mm-hmm. And then there's a discovery process and you can find out more. And that's, you know, that was able to happen, for example, with Monsanto and Roundup recently. We could do yeah. that. That's how we found out all the, the things that we did. But with vaccines, Congress in 1986 gave the companies that make uh, vaccines on the childhood immunization program uh, immunity from liability. And you, so if you think you've been injured by them, you cannot take your case to court. You, you have to go to a special, it's called a vaccine court that has no discovery 
and it just has a special master who hears the evidence and decides if you should be awarded something from this tax that they collect off of every vaccine that is sold in this country. So, um, and then an additional uh, immunity was signed into law just recently that gives uh, immunity to all of the companies producing COVID vaccines. So you can't sue them. Hmm. Wow. Unbelievable. So when you think about how much we know about Pfizer's bad behavior in the past, and we're trusting them with this, know also that if it turns out they've lied to us or they've misled us or they've hidden data or massaged the data, and you got injured as a result of that, you can't sue them. That's uh, that's so sad. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're like, oh my goodness, child, like now I don't even want to take this. <laughs> now I don't want to even take the vaccine, Joanne. <laughs> um, what would you say are the pros and cons? Like if, if I'm someone who's relatively healthy, should I even consider it? If I'm someone with you know, how do we determine for ourselves, I guess? Yeah, that's a good question. So first of all, even before, so, so before we had, you know, these press releases that Pfizer and Moderna were flooding us with about, you know, how great their vaccines are, you should know that when various experts actually looked at the protocols that were being followed to do the testing that they were doing, Mm-hmm. They saw in the protocols that the, so st- when a study is set up, there are what they call endpoints. This mm-hmm. is what we're going to measure to show that our product is effective, right? Mm-hmm. And when they set up the, when, when the public actually got to look at the protocols in these study designs, one of the things experts started pointing out was, oh, wait a minute, the endpoints they're using here aren't the things that everybody would normally be thinking the endpoints would be. I mean, here we're in a pandemic. People, people, some people are dying. There's hospital. Yeah. We're concerned about hospitals overrun. So really, the endpoints you would think would be: Does it prevent death? Does it prevent serious cases of the illness that that put people in the hospital? Right. 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 That's, but that was not the endpoints as described in the protocols. Huh. What they were were actually measuring was to see a reduction in symptoms in people who had mild to moderate disease. Could you make those less? That's the stated endpoint in their protocols. Wow. So I have to say I'm a little bit confused by the fact that they've now come out with these press releases saying, you know, it's been 90% effective at reducing, you know, the disease incidence because that's not the end point that they stated they were going to be measuring and basing efficacy ah, on. I got you. So I don't know how those pieces all fit together. Keep in mind the press releases are not, you know, published data. <laughs> They're not peer reviewed. Right. Right. It's just a pharmaceutical company's press release. That's really all it is. <laughs> right, right. So I I don't know how that fits in, but you can see, you know, even Forbes magazine um, um, had an online article written by uh, a guy at Harvard who's got a long history uh, of credibility in epidemiology and public health, mm-hmm. and he was, and even he was saying, you know, people need to realize if these vaccines are termed effective, what that means, because it. it, it as the protocol is set up, effective doesn't tell you, is it going to save your life or keep you out of the hospital? That's not what it is. Yeah. My goodness. The other thing is with every, with every medical intervention, you always need to ask yourself, what are the risks? 
and if I do nothing? And what are the risks if I take this intervention? Mm-hmm. And so if you are, you know, a, per, a healthy person with no other comorbidities and you're under the age of 70, you should know that the risk of dying from COVID for you is less than the risk of seasonal flu. Mm. So you would evaluate it based on that. Um, if you're if you're over that age, then you could be more at risk from getting COVID. So that would be a different calculation. But along with this, I think you also need to ask yourself, do I have any other options? Yeah. Are there other things I can do if I do get COVID and I'm a high-risk person? And I just want to let people know about a resource I just found today. Um, it's a COVID patient guide, and it looks mm. fabulous. Uh, so a group of doctors put this together. It's free. You can download it online. And if you just go to covidpatientguide.com, uh, you can get it. It's about 26 pages long, and it goes through the, their, their basic argument. I heard somebody talking about why they did this. And the basic argument is, you know, with heart attacks, with cancer, with all these other things, the standard of care says, we don't wait until you're deathly ill with this and then say, okay, come to the hospital. Now we're going to treat you. Right. We try to catch these things at the earliest possible stage when we can use less invasive, more effective means of preventing harm. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they, their argument is, we could, you know, with COVID, if you call your doctor and you say, I've got COVID, what should I do? Mostly what they'll tell you is, you know, stay home, don't go anywhere. If you get really bad, you go to the hospital. Yeah. And that, that's all they're telling people. Goodness. And there's actually a lot of things we know now that you can do that are especially effective in the early stages of covid to reduce your risk of being harmed. And so this COVID patient guide really runs through all of that and, and sort of has an algorithm they set up. So it's, you know, early stage, what you can do, late stage, what you can do. And then you can also evaluate for yourself the risks and benefits of the various things. So what I would advise people to do is to really educate themselves and have a plan in place. Mm-hmm. You know, no, that's here, great. Yeah, here's here's what I would want to do based on my risks, my values, and the risks and benefits of all these different things. No, that is awesome. That was a great resource. Are there any laws? So here's here's my thing. My thing is, you know, the media creates this frenzy. You're telling me that basically a press release from a pharmaceutical company is now being taken as fact. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, okay, all of this does not seem like it's leading to a great place. And my concern, which I think might be the concern of other people out there, is are there laws to protect us against mandatory vaccination? I would like to know that. I don't know if there is. Not only are there really not laws to protect us against that, but people should be aware of of how the laws are being expanded right now to make us even more vulnerable to these vaccines. Washington, D.C., in fact, just Yesterday or today, the council there just approved a measure and the mayor signed it into law that allows children as young as 11 years old to decide to get the va- any vaccine against their parents' wishes. And, oh not, and not only that, the school personnel, the nurse, and even the parents' insurance company is now mandated to not share this information with the parents to protect what? the child. 
Yes. So in other words, your your 11-year-old oh child goodness. could be in the classroom. The teacher could be saying, hey, our vaccination rates in our class for the COVID vaccine aren't as high as that class. And, you know, we've got a prize here if we get our rates up high enough. Who, you know, who hasn't gotten it yet? Who still needs it? And a kid says, you know, well, my parents don't want me to have it. Well, you can now get it and they don't even have to know that you got it. And oh we can charge your insurance company for it. And when your parents get the the statement of care, it won't disclose what it was and your parents can't ask and can't find out. What? I'm kid you not. This just passed. It's actually insane. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is so insane. How literally the caretaker of a child can't know what happened to their child. That is correct. Oh, no, that's very dangerous. And so, you know, a lot of people really are not informed about what a vaccine reaction even looks like or what it is. Yeah. Uh, and so imagine if that child has a vaccine reaction that night at home, for example. Right. And the parents could have no idea. The child may not even connect the dots because they're not thinking. They're thinking this is perfectly safe or it wouldn't have been offered to them, right? Right. So the child, the, the child could... They, they could have an anaphylactic reaction. They could have, you know, who knows what, what could happen. They could develop a seizure, a fever, anything. And the parents go to the ER. They can't even give that medical history to the doctors there because they don't even know it. Oh, my goodness. That is frightening. So is this only in D.C. or is this in many other states? As far no. as I know, D.C. is the first. Okay. But the fact that it actually went through in D.C., Right. I'm expecting they're they're going to use that playbook elsewhere and it's probably going to spread. My goodness. What about adults? So, you know, there there's some precedent legally that says during an epidemic, during some kind of a, you know, a crisis, the government has the right to require you to get a vaccination. Yikes. And you can see how this played out in the Orthodox Jewish community in New York City regarding measles just uh, within the last year. Mm. They actually went door to door and were asking to see people's vaccination records. Yikes. And they had the ability to find people if they did not get a vaccination, if they were not vaccinated for measles. Okay, yeah, that's pretty frightening. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, me, we know how dangerous measles is. There were a thousand cases of it last year in the United States and not a single death. Right, right. Wow. Wow. Wow, this has been very eye-opening. Um, is there anything else that you think that we should be thinking about or considering during this time when it comes to, you know, taking the vaccine, not taking the vaccine? So I just want to tell you, there is some pretty good science suggesting who is more likely to be harmed by COVID in addition to co you know, pre-existing comorbidities. Mm -hmm. but, but there's three factors people should be aware of. Number one is if you're vitamin D deficient, the studies show you are much more likely to have a severe case of COVID. You've got to, you've got to either check your vitamin D status or take vitamin D if you don't know it absolutely right now. Yeah. The second is you want to protect your glutathione levels. And mm -hmm. glutathione is an antioxidant that our body makes. You can boost your levels by taking something called N-acetylcysteine. Yes. But, but most importantly, you just want to make sure you are not taking Tylenol, which we know can drive your uh, glutathione levels down. And mm -hmm. there's studies showing that glutathione levels are a predictor of who is most likely to be hurt by COVID. Mm. The third thing, and I, I, I didn't mention this to you earlier, is flu shots. 
we we have science suggesting, especially in the elderly, elderly people who have gotten a flu shot are more likely to die from COVID if they get COVID. Wow. And we've known for a long time that just getting a flu shot in there's quite a few studies that suggest this makes you at increased risk of getting some other kind of upper respiratory tract infection, including other coronaviruses. So wow. we, we don't have anything yet specifically about flu vaccine and COVID, but COVID is caused by a coronavirus. And we have general information showing that flu shots increase coronavirus infections. Okay. That's all wonderful information. Thank you so much, Joanne. You are awesome. Thank you so much for having me on. Where can people find you online? So joannefarb.com is my website, J-O-A-N-N-F-A-R-B.com. And I have a blog. And if you want like some of the science that I've cited here, I actually link to that science directly in my blog article. So if you go to my blog, yeah, go to my blog, just scroll down, click on any of those articles and there'll be links to the science backing it up. Perfect. We'll link that in the show notes. Thank you. I so appreciate you doing this. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. Today, we are not taking questions, but remember, if you would like to have your question answered on the show, all you got to do is send me a DM, slide up in my DMs, or respond to the call for questions on my Instagram profile, at TheRawGirl, or contact me via my website, therawgirl.com. All right, it is time to close out the show. Hopefully, today's discussion has given you more insight into vaccines, maybe brought up some new questions. I really hope that you're interested in doing more research on your own to equip yourself and those you love. I know I learned a ton and I will personally be staying on top of these vaccinations as they progress, as well as all of the court trials and and all of the legal controversies going on as well. Today, I leave you with this quote from Olawale Daniel. COVID-19 offers us a great opportunity for individual and collective recession. It's a time to go back to the drawing board and rewrite the next phase of our existence. The upcoming generation has to read about how we fought this pandemic with or without vaccines in order to overcome similar situations during their times. Well, that's all for today, sis. If you're looking for more health tips or have a question for the show, find me on Instagram at TheRawGirl. You can also find me and contact me through my website, therawgirl.com. To listen to past episodes, visit stayingagelessshow.com. Mm-hmm.